Ezekiel 21, verses 14 through 23. As for you, son of man, prophesy, clap your hands, and let the sword come down twice, yes, three times, the sword for those to be slain. It is the sword for the great slaughter which surrounds them, that their hearts may melt and may many stumble. At all their gates I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is made like lightning. It is taken up for slaughter. Cut sharply to the right. Set yourself to the left, wherever your face is directed. I will also clap my hands, and I will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken. The word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land. And make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah, into Jerusalem, the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver, into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem, to set battering rams to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers, but to them it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to, to remembrance that they may be taken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered and that your, work, your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your deeds your sins appear. Because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low which is exalted. A ruin, a ruin will I make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. And to you, son of man, or you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach. Say, a sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment, return it to its sheath. In the place where, where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you, and I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire." Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall no more be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So, we got a lot here to cover tonight, and let's just see what, how far we get. If we cover all of it, that'd be great, but I'm not sure we will, to be honest with you. Back up at verse 14, Ezekiel is told to clap his hands. And in verse 17, God says he'll clap his hands as well. Now, the context here in these verses, it's tied to the judgment of God at the end of the tribulation period, which we also know is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But this term, clap your hands, made me think of many other famous passages in the Bible where the Bible talks about clapping our hands. And we've a lot of times seen those clap your hands passages as praise. But here it doesn't look like praise, does it? No, here it's judgment. And so just for the fun of it, I went back and looked at all the clap your hands passages and looked at their context, and I was surprised to find one they, they were tied to praise in some way, but actually they were praising God because of the time of the end of the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom. 
All these years that we have always heard and sung the songs, clap your hands, all ye people. You know that one? And how the trees of the field will clap their hands. You know, we, we always, it's a, it's a time of praise. And, but it is, but as you're about to see, it's a time of praise when they're praising God because of the judgment and him becoming king over the whole, over the whole earth during the millennial kingdom. So I want you to see what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Go back with me to Psalm 47. Psalm 47, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. <clears throat> excuse me, a great king where? Over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. When is this going to happen? That's in the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. So that clap your hands, all you peoples, is a time of celebration of the judgment at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back and sets up the millennial kingdom. Oh, but go to Psalm 98. <clears throat> Psalm 98. Look at verses 1 through 9. It says, oh, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. Where? In the sight of the nations. When are all the nations going to acknowledge his righteousness? At the end of the tribulation period, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And he has remembered the steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Again, at the end of the tribulation period, beginning of the millennial kingdom. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Has this happened yet? No. Make joyful noise to the, earth, to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the, with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. The sea roar. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. I have to just take a second and tell you something about verse uh, 9. Years ago, when my wife and I were newlyweds, and we were living in New Orleans as an associate pastor, I took her on a date one night to a barbecue place. Harold's Texas Barbecue was in Metairie, Louisiana. And as we went there and ordered our food, we sat down at the table, and I noticed in the back of the restaurant, there was an older man reading his Bible. And so I, you know, me being me, I have to go talk to this person. Becky rolls her eyes because I'm ruining the date. But I said, I promise I'll be back real quick. I went to this man and I said, I just want to tell you, I'm excited to see you reading your Bible. I love seeing people read their Bible in a public place. Come to find out he was the owner of the restaurant. It was Harold himself. And he said to me, I'm a prophet. I said, okay. 
He said, I know the exact year and the day of Jesus' return. I said, whoa, 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 hang on for a second. The Bible's very clear that no one knows the day of the year. He goes, oh, you're one of those scoffers. And then he sat down to show me all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the difference between the they's and the them's and the we's and the us's. And he said, it's to be known by the we's and the us's, not by the they's and the them's. And boom, boom, boom. And even though I wasn't convinced, what happened to me that night, though, was I had been embarrassed by how well he knew his Bible. I thought to myself, even though he's not getting it correct, the man knew where everything was. I mean, he showed me literally almost hundreds of verses in that short period of time. Boom, boom, boom. He had his Bible all marked up. He said, because you're a scoffer, I won't tell you the day. I'll just tell you the year. I said, okay, tell me the year. He said, it's going to be 1998. This was prior to that, by the way. But he said that God gave him a vision and told him, go to this book of the night book of the Bible that has the 98 chapters. And he said, God, there's only one book in the Bible that has 98 chapters. And it was Psalms. He went there, and then he began to pray for insight. And this number represents this, and this number represents that, and this number represents that. And he said number nine was the number of judgment. And so he read verse nine, and it says, behold, he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He goes, Jesus is going to return in 1998. Now, you know what? There's a strong chance Harold thought met Jesus in 1998. But Jesus didn't return for his church in 1998. He was proven not to be correct in what he did. But God used him. They used him that day to make me really become really hungry to know this book inside and out. What happened to Becky? Well, the funny part was he saw her over there waiting for me, and he looked at me and he said, don't get bogged. He pointed to Becky and said, don't get bogged down by the cares of this world. I said to him, I said, that's my wife. He said, oh, oh, okay, then it's okay then. <laughs> but uh, be careful, be careful of all of a sudden you've got a vision or an insight that supersedes what the whole of Scripture said. Let me take you to one more passage, though. Go to Isaiah 55. You'll see the context of these famous passages are all having to do with the end of the tribulation period and the beginning of the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. Isaiah 55, look at verses 12 and 13. He's talking to the nation of Israel. He says, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Is this going to happen in the tribulation period or the millennial kingdom? Millennial kingdom. So do you see, when God told Ezekiel, clap your hands, and I'm going to clap my hands, if you didn't understand what had been going on in the whole of Scripture, you would have think that that clap your hands meant simply just judgment. But actually, it's more than judgment, because actually, when he used the term clap your hands, if you had known your Old Testament, and you'd known what God had already said through the prophets, and remember, Psalms are prophecy as well. What he had said through the prophets in the Psalms was, there are going to be times that they said, clap your hands. In the context of all those places are times where they're going to praise God, but they're going to praise Him for His judgment when He comes to set up His kingdom on the earth. This section we're looking at here in verses 14 through uh, 17 actually is the end of that prophecy about the end of the tribulation period in the millennial kingdom that we've been looking at for the last three weeks. 
Now, in verses 18 through 24, Ezekiel is told in these verses to prophesy about a decision that the king of Babylon will be making in the day that Ezekiel was alive. All right, so in verses 18 through 24, we're not going to go back and reread it, but he said he wanted Ezekiel to make a signpost. And one signpost, how many of you remember MASH? Remember the signpost in MASH? And they had all these so far to here and so far to there and how many miles? Kind of like that, where you make a signpost, one sign goes toward Rabbah of the Ammonites. That's the, 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 the major city of, of Ammon. The, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Capital city, thank you. Capital city of the Ammonites. And then another was to point to Jerusalem. And that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was going to come to that parting of the ways. And he was going to decide, do I go and attack Rabbah of the Ammonites or do I go attack Jerusalem? And the reason he was wrestling with this is because in 593 B.C., Zedekiah, who had been left in charge by Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he's been coming and attacking Jerusalem in waves. 605 B.C., he took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others. In 597, you remember, he came and took Ezekiel and his wife and 10,000 people to Babylon. But he left Zedekiah, an uncle, in charge as a governor under his control. And Zedekiah was told by Nebuchadnezzar not to rebel against him. He was even told by God not to rebel against him. Through the prophet Jeremiah many times, don't rebel against the king. God's doing this discipline for a reason. You need to just stay on the operating table because God's taking you through a teaching time and a testing time. Don't try to get off. Go through what God's got in mind and you'll, you'll do well. But Zedekiah not only rebelled against the king of Babylon, Zedekiah actually not only rebelled, he partnered with the Ammonites to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar. So let me just show you what I'm talking about. Go to 2 Kings chapter 24. Second Kings 24 verses 18 through 20. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, even though he was told not to. Go to Jeremiah chapter 27. Look at verses 1 through 11. In Jeremiah 27, verses 1 and following, it says, In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah... From the Lord, thus the, thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, and the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon, by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their master. So all these different nations around had come to Zedekiah. And they're making a plot to fight against together against uh, Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, 
then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune, fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and to dwell there, declares the Lord. So God, through Jeremiah, tells Zedekiah and all these other nations and their kings, look, listen closely. God said, I'm the one who determines who's in power on the earth and how long they're in power. And I've given to Nebuchadnezzar control of the whole earth at this time, even the animals. And I want you all to serve him. Oh, there'll come a point when it's time for him to be dealt with. After he and his son and his grandson have reigned, then it'll be his time and other nations are going to make him their slave. But here's what God said. He said, don't rebel against him, because if you rebel against, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, who are you rebelling against? You're rebelling against me, because I'm doing this. If you do your study, you'd find that actually Zedekiah didn't listen to Jeremiah, and he and the Ammonites still plotted together to go against Babylon. They actually invited the, the Egyptians to come from Egypt to help fight them. And the Egyptians actually uh, come to help for a little bit, but then the Egyptians changed their mind and turned around. And went back. Go to Jeremiah 37. We're in 27. Go to Jeremiah 37. Jeremiah 37, verses 1 through 10. It says, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehuchel, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. And when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. They heard about the Egyptians. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent. By the way, those are the ones that didn't go out to fight, who stayed back in the tent. And the wounded men and every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. In other words, God said, I have so decreed that they're going to be defeating you because of your rebellion, that even if you win the battle and there's only wounded men left and the people who didn't even dare come out of their tent to fight, I'm going to take those guys and, beat, and defeat you with them. So now Nebuchadnezzar has gotten word that Zedekiah and the Ammonites have rebelled against him and they've called the, Babylon, the Egyptians up to help. They turn around for a little bit because of the Egyptians, but then the Egyptians, for some reason, go back to their land, and Babylon comes back, and Ezekiel is told, by God, I want you to, in Babylon now, I want you to put a signpost. One points to the Ammonites, Rabbah, that city. One points to Jerusalem. 
Nebuchadnezzar is going to stand there at the parting of the ways, and he's going to use divination to find out which way he should go. Who do I go whoop up on first? And he's going to do three things, the scripture says. If you go back to Ezekiel, you'll see, you'll see three things that he does. He consults his arrows, consults the teraphim, and he consults a liver. Now, you may think this sounds strange, but to be honest with you folks, most all of this stuff people are still doing today. We don't know the specifics of how each of these played out, but we know enough to give you an idea. For example, the consulting of the arrows is kind of a couple of ways they could have done it. They could have written the name on the shaft of the arrows, one for Jerusalem, one for Ammon or whatever, and thrown them up in the air. And whichever one hit the ground first, that one was the one that, or he could have just thrown them down on the ground. And if whichever one was pointing in a certain direction, that would determine which way. It's kind of like, you, you know how, Bill, when people play golf and they're trying to decide who's teeing off first, what do they do? They take a tee and throw it up in the air, don't they? And wherever, some of you don't golf know this. The four guys that are all teeing off together will stand in a square, and they'll throw a tee up in the, ground, up in the air. And whichever, when it lands, whichever way it's pointing, that person tees off first. Then they'll toss it again for the other three and so on. And that's how they determine who hits first. I always tell people, look, you all hit first, because I'm going to be hitting first the rest of the day, because they always let the guy with the lowest score play on the next hole to tee off first. But... That's one of the ways they might have done it. He, they tossed the arrows, and the arrows gave them direction as to which to go. The teraphim were their idols. As you know, people are consulting their idols all the time, and how the idols speak to them or not, I don't know, and all that kind of stuff. But the consulting of the liver, then it's an animal's liver, and, and you say, well, what can you get from an animal's liver? How could you look at an animal's liver and hold it in your hand and get an ins Well, folks, how are people reading palms today? You know, people are reading palms and getting your life story or... They read the bumps on your head and all that kind of stuff. Just as wacky as the liver is, is what they're doing today. I still remember a, an old uh, Muppet show where Paul Simon is singing, Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? And he's going through the scene of Scarborough Fair. And this one Muppet yells out, Lifelines, read your lifelines. And so he stops his song and he goes over to this Muppet and holds his hand out and the puppet, Muppet reads his palm. And he says to the Muppet, what does it say? And the Muppet says, sing fast. <laughs> While we're young. But as you may have already caught on in Ezekiel 21, when he tossed the arrows, consulted his idols, and consulted the liver, they all pointed to Jerusalem. Does anybody want to have any idea who made all of them point to Jerusalem? God did. Look back again at verse 22. Into his right hand will come the divination for Jerusalem. Now we're going to get to in a second the fact that we're not supposed to be doing these things because we're to be consulting God at all times. But I want to take you to Proverbs 16. Go to Proverbs 16. Look at verse 33. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's the lot's every decision is from the Lord. Did you catch that? And you go back all through your study of the Bible, and you look at all the times they cast lots, and you'll see it's never by chance how it plays out. You know that when the Jonah was running from God, and he got on that boat to go as far away from Nineveh as he, was wanted, as he could. 
and the storm came up, and all these other people were all trying to figure, doing, praying to their gods, what's going on? And they cast lots, and the lot fell to who? Fell to Jonah. When the nation of Israel sinned and kept some of the prized possessions in Jericho, and they didn't win their next battle against Ai, which they should have easily, they cast lots and sought the Lord, and it kept narrowing it down to the exact family that had stolen it. Even in Acts chapter 1, you'll see that when uh, they're looking to replace Judas, because the scripture said that someone was supposed to replace him after he had committed suicide, they said, we've got to choose from among us men full of spirit and wisdom. And the Bible says that they, that person also had to have been there from the time that Jesus was baptized all the way until his ascension. And from there, there were two men. And Peter prayed. He said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show us which one you have chosen. And the scripture says they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. Now, I've had people tell me for years, well, they should have never cast lots. They never should have done that. I don't think Matthias should have been the last apostle. Paul's supposed to be the last apostle and all this kind of stuff. But doesn't the Bible here tell us that the lot's cast in the lap, but God directs which way it goes? Oh, and also, the last time you see casting lots anywhere in the Bible is in Acts chapter 1. You know why? Because in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And he will lead us and guide us. And we don't need to cast lots anymore. We don't have to do that. To seek the will of God. And too many of you, I'm just going to say this as nicely as I can, too many of you are still casting lots when it comes to seeking the will of God and direction in your life. Well, this happened. That must be what God wants. Folks, there are five main ways that God speaks to us. He speaks through his word. He speaks through prayer. And he speaks through his spirit. He also speaks through circumstances. And he also speaks through other believers. Listen closely. He speaks through his word, first and foremost, because if you don't know his word, you won't know which spirit's talking to you, and there's a lot of spirits talking to you that aren't God's. He also speaks through prayer. There'll be times that you'll be in prayer with God, and the spirit of God will speak to you. There's a third time, that, the third way that God speaks, but there's more than five, but there's five main ways. First was through his word, second through prayer, third through his spirit. You'll say, Jim, isn't that the same thing as prayer? No. Sometimes God will talk to you, and you weren't talking to him. But then he uses, listen closely, four and five circumstances and other believers to confirm what he's already told you through his word, through, his, through prayer, and through his spirit. So he speaks first and foremost through his word, through prayer, and through his spirit to give us direction. He will only, listen, only use circumstances and other believers to confirm what he's already told us through the number one, number one, two, and three. But folks, if we're honest, with people today, even in the church, seek the will of God, what do they run to first? They run to four and five, don't they? They go and try to interpret circumstances. Maybe this is what God wants. Or they ask somebody else, what do you think I ought to do? And years ago, when I was a young preacher, I used to try to answer that question. And then I realized one day I'm not the Holy Spirit. And that's not my job. So if you were to ask me today, Jim, what do you think I ought to do? My question is going to be, what do you think God's telling you? Well, I don't know. Well, then I can't help you because my role as a body, part of the body in Christ is only to come alongside and to say whether we recognize this is of God or not. Does it line up with his word? Does it line up with who he is? Do I sense that that's what he's saying as well? There have been people over the years who have come up to me and said, I have a word from God for you. And I always lovingly tell them, look, I will receive it only if it's something God's already told me. Because he lives with inside of Jim Johnson. And he's never going to speak to you to tell me something when he lives inside of me. He's going to talk to me first. There have been many times, though, 
that people will come up and say, God just wants me to share this with you. And it lines up perfectly with what God's already been talking to me about through his word, through prayer, through his spirit. And it confirms that I've heard the will of God. But if you give me a word from God that doesn't match up with anything I've ever heard before, I'm sorry. I'm not going to receive it. Because I don't need a prophet to come give me a word from God when the spirit of God lives within me. And if you go back and take a look at Acts chapter 20 and 21, Paul said that he was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know fully what's going to happen to me there. I only know that trials and hardships await me. And then he goes to this town, and this prophet Agabus comes and takes Paul's belt, ties his own hands with it, and he says, Thus says the Lord, the owner of this belt is going to be bound and imprisoned, taken off to Jerusalem. The people in the church all hearing this prophecy for the first time, interpreted it incorrectly and said, Paul, you're not supposed to go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to be bound and go to prison. How did Paul hear that prophet, prophet, prophecy from Agabus? It lined up with what God had already told him. Did you catch it? I don't know specifically what's going to happen. All I know is the Holy Spirit warns me. I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and the Spirit has warned me that trouble and hardship is going to face me. So when Agabus came and gave the prophecy that he was going to be bound and put in prison, they, not hearing God speak, all interpreted circumstances, you're not supposed to go. Don't run to circumstances first. But the prophecy from a believer in the church lined up with what Paul had been hearing from God. And he took it as confirmation. You see the difference? Folks, we're not to, you know, try to de decide what God wants us to do by looking at livers and stuff like that. But at the same time, isn't it cool how we have a God who can get the attention of people in the world who don't know who he is, who are out there going. I saw a sign out there today on the way down, Psychic Angela. Isn't it neat that we have a God who can get a, the attention of people who don't know him even through Psychic Angela or any other way he chooses. But for those of us who are his children, we're not to do those things. We're to seek the will of the Lord. What does the Bible say in James chapter 1, verse 5? If you lack wisdom, you're to what? Ask God who gives generously. He'll give you wisdom without finding fault. If we seek the Lord and don't rely on our own wisdom, he will direct our paths. Folks, Jesus came to live within you, to lead you and to guide you and direct you through your life. And as I prayed at the beginning of our time, I have been reminded by God that he, every day ordained for Jim Johnson was written in his book before one of them came to be. And he has a purpose for this cancer that I'm going through. I would be foolish to say, all right, God, I'm going to do some great things for you through this. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm the one who decided you have it and why. And I have my purposes. Why don't you line up with those? Something cool happened today. Again, most everybody thinks that God's going to use me to bring somebody to Christ. But you know what? They may or may not happen. Plus, also, the call on my life, I'm not really an evangelist. My passion is to teach the word to people that are hungry for the word and want to know the word. And that's how I've been gifted. And today, as the nurse was hooking me up, she asked me what I do. I said, it'll scare you. She goes, are you a lawyer? I said, no. She goes, I'm a preacher. I'm sorry, I said, I'm a preacher. She goes, yay. She got excited. She goes, that, that doesn't scare me at all. And another lady, Maria, was over there. No, uh, May, was, May was her name, not Maria, May. She was at the desk, and she goes, yay. 
And they started asking about what I do and where I preach and all this stuff. And I explained about my radio program. And they're like, what, what channel is it on? And they quickly snatched up, started writing down. And they took business cards. And who knows? I might be there to go speak to Christians. Let's not assume that we know what God's going to do through this. Let's just be willing to let him do what he wants to do. He's got a perfect plan. And let's just walk through it and enjoy it. I praise God for a great day today. Tomorrow might not be. That's okay. I haven't done anything right or wrong. Well, he'll walk me through that too. And you just never know. You just never know. God tells Ezekiel in verses 25, go back to chapter 21, in verses 25 through 27, he tells Ezekiel what's going to happen to Zedekiah and the kingship in Israel. And I don't want you to miss this. There's something here that's really deep that many of you would never notice unless you looked in a study Bible. Because some of our translations don't do a real good job at this. And neither does the English Standard Version, but their study notes do. All right, in verses 25 through 27, let me read it for you. It says, And you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel. Notice how Ezekiel again calls Zedekiah prince instead of king. Ezekiel will never acknowledge his kingship. Ezekiel keeps calling him prince all the way through. He says, And you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin of ruin I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Now there's something here, which is a quote from a previous part of the Bible, but most people have missed it because of some of the messes in our translations at times. God is telling Zedekiah to remove his crown. And he's saying things shall not remain as they are. In other words, there's not going to be any more kings. We've already studied that earlier in our study, haven't we, Heather? This was the last of the kings over Israel. Who's going to be the next king over Israel? Jesus. Things are not going to remain as they are. Take the crown off your head. But they're not going to remain as they are until he comes. Do you see it? Until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him, the kingship. Now, I want you to go with me back to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, look at verse 10. There's a ton of prophecy in this whole section. When Jacob was blessing his sons. And in Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But some of you have a little asterisk or a note there by yours, don't you? Some of you have little notes there, right there behind, until tribute comes to him. Mine has a little number four. If you go down and look at what the study note says, it's going to say until Shiloh comes or another translation that's from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it says until he comes to whom it belongs. Does that sound familiar? I don't think it's an accident. I think that what God said through, Zedek uh, through Jer uh, Ezekiel to Zedekiah was a prophecy about the kingship coming to an end until he comes, the one to whom it belongs. 
And we know now that this individual, whoever he is, was going to come from the tribe of who? Judah. Oh, if you want to have some fun, you can go back in the verses prior to that, and you're going to see Judah is a lion. And what does Jesus show up as in Revelation chapter 5? The lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a prophecy, folks, here in Ezekiel chapter 21 that's been missed a long, for a long time. But it's a prophecy about Jesus coming back, and it ties all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Things shall not remain as they are. There'll be a break in the line of kings. But a time is coming, and a king is coming, to whom judgment belongs. And when he appears, the throne of David will be given to him forever. Go to Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and the Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where they had, he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Now you can understand why the Jews at that time when Jesus showed up on the earth we're expecting this to be the fulfillment. The prophecies were very clear. And this is a guy he's from the tribe of Judah. And, and he, he, he meets all the requirements. He was born in Bethlehem and all these things. They were expecting him to set up his kingdom. They just didn't understand. There were other scriptures they were ignoring that he still had to suffer and die for the sins of the world and his be bruised and crushed. And they were to pierce his hands and his feet. And he was going to be put to death, but then see his offspring. There were so much other prophecies they were missing. And that's why so many people can build a theology about the last days that is not totally correct. They can use a lot of scriptures and prove their doctrine. The problem is the amillennial view and other views that don't understand about a tribulational period, a millennial kingdom literally on the earth, those views that ignore that have proved wonderfully from scripture their doctrine. The problem is they've left off other verses and they've missed it. The only, the only teaching that uses the whole of scripture, all the prophecies and puts them together, is the pre-trib, pre-mill view. I just want to challenge you, as you read, don't get sucked into somebody saying, look at this one verse and what it proves. Well, there's other verses. There's other verses. Then when you put them all together, we can understand what's going on. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who is the one to whom judgment belongs? Jesus. Actually, in John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus himself says the Father doesn't judge anyone. He's handed all judgment over to the Son. So here in this passage where Zedekiah is being told by Ezekiel from God, take off the crown, dude. Things aren't going to remain as they are. Actually, they're going to stop being the way they are until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs. And God's going to give judgment and all the authority and the crown to him. 
And that's Jesus when he comes back. Now, oh, by the way, in verses uh, 28 through 32, God's not going to forget Ammon. Remember, there was the crossroads. And didn't God already prophesy in Jeremiah 27? We're not going to make you go back there. But in verse 8, God had said, In any nation that rebels against me, against King Babylon, I'm going to deal with them. Well, Ammon rebelled as well. What happened was, is God set it up that Nebuchadnezzar would come and attack Jerusalem first. By the way, if you go back to Ezekiel 21 real quick, go to verse 22. In his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to set up battering rams to open the mouth of murder and to lift up the voice with shouting and set battering rams against the gates to cast up mounds, build siege towers. But to them it will seem like a false divination. Who is the them being referred to here? They're going to see this as a false divination. You got it, Jeremy. You got it. The Jews. To the Jews. Remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon, but he's prophesying to Jews who are captives in Babylon, and he's building this little diorama, if you will. He builds this signpost with one going to Ammon and one going to Jerusalem, and he's going to show how Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. He's acting this play out, and God's going to have everything point to Jerusalem, and the people, the people of Israel are going to see this as a wrong interpretation. But it's the right interpretation because God's the one who does that. Nebuchadnezzar will come and destroy Jerusalem. But as you're going to see in verses 28 through 32, God hasn't forgotten the Ammonites. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites. And concerning their reproach, say, a sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you to place you on, on the necks of the profane wicked whose day has come, the time of their final punishment, return it to its sheath. In other words, put the sword back in its sheath for right now. Ammonites aren't going to get their judgment right now like the Jerusalem people are. And then it says, in the place where you created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. And I will pour out my indignation upon you, and I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of the brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land, and you shall no more be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. All right. So God had promised judgment for any nation, not just the Jews, but any of those other nations there in Jeremiah 27 that rebelled against Babylon. Ammonites did. But I want to just take you on a quick little study real quickly to take a look at the fact that the Ammonites play a big part in what happens in the next few days after the siege of Jerusalem. You may or may not know this, but after Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Jerusalem and burns it with fire, he leaves only the poorest people in the land, takes everybody else off or puts them to death. Zedekiah, his sons are put to death right in front of him, and then they poke his eyes out, so that's the last thing he sees, and he's tarried alive the rest of his life to Babylon. But Zedekiah lives out his days with the last thing he saw being his children put to death. But he leaves not only the poorest in the land, but he leaves this young man, Gedaliah, in charge. He's not king, he's not a ruler, he's just like a, a vassal governor for King Nebuchadnezzar. And go to Jeremiah chapter 40, you'll see that the Jews who had run earlier during all these sieges now start to kind of make their way back to Jerusalem when they hear that Gedaliah has been left in charge. Chapter 40, look at verses 13 and 14. It says, Now Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and they said to him, do you know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. 
So Gedaliah is now in charge over the poor people in the land. Jeremiah is one of the people that have been left in the land. And Gedaliah has been given a word that this guy Ishmael is wanting to kill him. But Gedaliah doesn't listen. And Gedaliah doesn't even ask God, is this going to happen? He uses his own wisdom and he says, nah, I don't think he's going to do that. Anybody want to take a wild guess what happens to Gedaliah? Well, go to chapter 41 and you'll find out. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, as they ate bread together there at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. So these ten men whoop up a whole lot of folks, and they killed Gedaliah. Go to verses 11 through 15. But when Johanan, this is the one that had warned Gedaliah, the son of Kareah and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael the son of Nethaniah had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that's in Gibeon. And when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Korea and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. These are the people that have been taken captive by Ishmael. So all the people with whom Israel had carried away captive from Israel turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men, and he went where? To the Ammonites. God's keeping track. God's keeping track. Go to Jeremiah 49. Look at verses 1 through 6. Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then is Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in its cities? In other words, when the Jews were being judged by God and taken out of the land, the Ammonites would come and take over their, their property. Like, oh, it's ours now. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who, got, who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah, put on sackcloth, lament and run to and fro from among the hedges. For Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter? who trusted in her treasure, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all who are around you, and you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Now, we had just seen in Ezekiel, though, that they would be remembered no more. Isn't that correct? In verse 32. And then here we though see in the prophecy in Jeremiah that at a certain point, he'll restore the fortunes of, of the Ammonites. We've already done this in our study. We've looked at that's how it's going to happen during the Millennial Kingdom. So who's not going to be remembered anymore? What's that? You're two for two, Jeremy. You're two for two. The generation that was doing all this stuff that I was just reading about that were deserving of that judgment, but they were spared that judgment when God had them go to Jerusalem instead. God says, oh, by the way, make a prophecy to the Ammonites as well. God, I remembered what you did too. 
and I'll deal with you when the time comes. And you guys that think this is your best chance to take over that land and all that, no, you'll be dealt with. And you trying to make a name for yourself, you'll be remembered no more. Again, the importance of putting it all together. Because I could convince you of one thing showing you one verse, and convince you of the exact opposite showing you a different verse, correct? You gotta put it all together. Now, we're going somewhere for us tonight. I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions as we close tonight. Is God still in control of his planet today? Does, listen closely, because you may not like this question, because you know the answer, and you don't like the answer. Does he still put nations in power for his purposes? Are they always righteous nations? Then folks, learn from Judah and the Ammonites and submit to the governing authorities God has put over you. Go to me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. This is written to the church. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. If you remember from our study earlier, we saw how Jeremiah had been told to send a letter to the exiles in Babylon and to tell them, God's going to have you in this captivity in Babylon for 70 years. So build houses, plant crops, let your kids marry each other. You're going to be there a while. Submit yourself to the nation that God's brought you under, and this will go well for you. The sad thing is, is the church is supposed to be living in the world, but not of it. But the church is trying to change the world. I'm going to say something that's hard for some of us to grasp, and some of us don't even like it. But you just got to stick with me here, and hopefully you understand that in the whole of Scripture, we got to listen closely to what the Scripture says. Does the Bible ever say that the church is going to change the world? Oh, the Bible actually says that narrows the road that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. And wide is the path that goes to destruction, and many go that way. Yet the church today has fallen prey to this mindset of the kingdom now. No, his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's when Jesus comes back 
Then that day when we clap our hands, when the rivers clap their hands, the trees clap their hands, and he is king over all the earth. Until that day, what has he told us to do? We are to live righteously as lights in this world, submitting ourselves to the authorities that he's put us under for a season for his purposes. And he will walk us through it. Some, like Jeremiah, will be spared being taken captive to Babylon. He didn't have it easy, though. He was given a choice. He had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and chains with all the people. And as he was being led out, he was stopped. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, I, through, through his commander, he says to Jeremiah, I've heard of all the prophecies you were saying, and you were right. God did all this. Even though they didn't listen to you, I was listening. Therefore, take the chains off of this man. He's a righteous man. And then he said to him, you got a choice now, Jeremiah. Do you want to come and live with us in Babylon? We'll make sure you're taken very well care of. Or if you want, you can stay in Jerusalem with the poor of the land. And Jeremiah prayed about it, and he felt that God wanted him to stay in Jerusalem. As you're going to see later on in our study, if we get there, he doesn't have it easy staying in Jerusalem because, as you see, Gedaliah is already not listening to anybody, and he gets killed. There's a whole lot of craziness go on, and they end up running. When God says don't, they all run to Egypt to hide from Nebuchadnezzar, and more trouble comes, and Jeremiah gets taken to Egypt again, and all this stuff. It wasn't easy for Jeremiah to stay in Jerusalem with the poor of the land, because what was left of Jerusalem? Nothing. The city had been destroyed. Everything had been burnt. All the prize stuff had been taken off to Babylon, and he was given a choice. You can come live in Babylon and be taken care of, or you can stay in Jerusalem. As Jeremiah prayed, the road that God had for him was to stay back with the poor of the land and to keep speaking for God among those people, because God had a prophet like Ezekiel already in Babylon. But others were taken to Babylon. Folks, let's stop thinking that as soon as Christians get the right people in office, we're going to change the laws. No. We're to pray. Pray for our leaders and pray that they submit themselves to God because it'll be good for the nation and the world if that happens. But let's not think we're going to change things. Submit yourself to the authorities that God has given you. Have I prayed that God would take this away that I'm dealing with? Yeah. Have many people, hundreds if not thousands of people around the globe prayed that it be taken away? Yes. But God spoke to me this past week. And he said, Jim, I've already showed you that I planned this for you before you were born. I'm not going to take it away. I'm not saying I won't be cured by the chemo. Pray that I will. But I can look you all in the eye and say, I don't know how this is going to play out. But this is something God has ordained for Jim Johnson. And I'm going to embrace it and walk whatever road it leads me to. And I've got a peace. I want that same peace for you. So I'm going to say something to you as you close. It's the same thing Jesus said to Paul when Paul was meeting Jesus and finding out that Jesus was going to win with his plan for Paul's life. In the King James, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Some of your translations say kick against the pricks. In other words, when a man is riding a horse and he's got the spurs on, who's going to win, the horse or the spurs? The spurs are going to win. It's hard for you to kick against the spurs. Your heavenly father has a plan for your life. Walk with him through it. You'll find out in the long run it's best. Do we always like it at the time? No. Is it always fun? No, but it will produce 
righteousness, character, hope. I love you all. Thanks so much for coming. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.